Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Sydney writer Christopher Hepworth's Hollywood-paced international thrillers feature a 21st-century James Bond hero, a high body count, and lots of action in exotic settings. It's a little like Indiana Jones with high-stakes conspiracy. But the Bond is different from the 20th century Bond. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Christopher tells us why he's always loved the thriller genre and how growing up in Zambia has influenced his writing. But before we hear from Christopher, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode are available at the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Christopher's website and books, a full transcript of our chat, and information on how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Christopher. Hello there, Christopher, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, thank you, Jenny. It's a pleasure to be here. We've just had a previous little chat before we started this recording and you were describing to me the setting that you usually do your work in and it sounds totally idyllic. For those who are entering a northern winter, give us a picture of yourself at home in Sydney working at your laptop. Oh yes, Jenny. So I'm very, very fortunate. So I, my, uh, my study really is a balcony at the back of the house and it looks out onto Australian bush. Uh, a little section of bush called the Glen. And it's a little stopping place for, for rosellas and lorikeets and kookaburras. Uh, and they uh, they come in and visit and, and they're really friendly. So some of the lorikeets are probably the most friendliest birds in, in Australia and they will actually perch on my laptop as I'm writing. And I've, I've managed to film them doing some extraordinary things, which I put on my tweet, but it's such a relaxing place to write. It's very inspirational. That's wonderful. I really will have to look up your feed and, and have a look. But perhaps just starting at the work end of our chat, you, you've had a very distinguished career in corporate life before you turned to writing. And I'm just wondering, what was the catalyst? Was there a once upon a time moment that you felt, if I don't write, I won't have really fulfilled what I'm here for? And, and how did you go about it? Oh, yes, Jenny. I've always been a voracious reader, so I'll read probably about uh, five or six books a month, uh, mainly thrillers, but also historical novels and uh, historical fiction. Uh, so I've been an avid reader and really felt that I could do something myself, but never had the time because I was also so busy at work. Uh, the one moment that made me decide to actually be an author was when I I decided to apply for a very, very senior role. So the role would have involved uh, traveling overseas, um, really looking after people in three different cities around the world, in, in London and Chicago and, uh, and Sydney. Uh, I didn't get the job. Uh, I think there was a possibility that I could have felt very sorry for myself, uh, but I decided to actually use it to my advantage. And I thought, what could I do with the time that uh, I've now been given that I otherwise wouldn't have had? And I decided to 
really pursue my lifelong ambition to be an author and use that time uh, that uh, I would otherwise have been flying around the world. So I decided that I would be writing on the train into work, on the train coming back from work, um, a couple of hours each evening and about three or four hours during the weekends. And, um, and it just freed up an enormous amount of time that I could then devote to writing. And it paid off. Um, you know, I've, it's, it's ended up being a very positive experience when it could have been when it could have been an event that left me bitter and twisted. Yeah, that sounds like a real turning lemons into lemonade approach attitude that you've got there. Your work has got a very confident feel about it. They're fast-paced financial and geopolitical thrillers, and it sounds like right from the beginning you had no doubt about the genre that you wanted to pursue. Would that be right? Um, yes, uh, although I mentioned briefly before that I also enjoyed um, historical fiction, and that really is my great love, uh, and I thought I would give that one a go. Uh, but uh, what I did was I interweaved a lot of history into my thrillers, but uh, after the first draft of my first novel, The Sleepwalker Legacy, everyone was saying, oh, we just love the, the action and the thriller bit, and the history bit is dragging it down, so can we have more thriller and, and less history? So by the time I finished with The Sleepwalker Legacy, it ended up being about 90% uh, thriller and 10% history, uh, whereas now it's probably about 5% history. I still like to put a little bit of history in there. Uh, but thrillers allow such a broad canvas uh, you know, it has to be a pleasure for me too. Uh, and it allows me to explore uh, new races, new countries, new um, uh, um, new uh, cultures, and, um, and and it's got to be a pleasure for me too. And writing thrillers allows me to to have that pleasure. So you know, I, I liken it to uh, I'd much rather go on a on a holiday down the Nile than in a holiday camp in, in wet and windy England. So being a thriller writer allows me to, to have that experience. Yes, you've certainly got the exotic settings and the high body count that Hollywood likes. And I wonder if your work has been influenced by movies as well. I mean, you almost feel when you're reading it that you could imagine it as a movie. Do, are you a big movie buff as well, particularly in that thriller genre, I'm thinking? Yes, absolutely. Um, while I'm writing, I've probably had to give up a little bit of TV watching because uh, the time becomes very precious. Uh, but I do like the big blockbuster movies, um, you know, the Indiana Jones uh, uh, movies, which are full of action and have quite an interesting plot, a bit of history in them, uh, which kind of mirrors the type of uh, books that I write. Um, the big business part of it, I think, provides the conspiracy, conspiracy angle. Uh, so everyone believes that uh, you know, money is behind all the bad things that happen in the world and that business is behind the money. And in my books, all I'm doing is I'm making that true in my books. So I take the pharmaceutical industry and the uh, big oil and social media, uh, you know, the weapons industry, and I make that the basis for the conspiracy and also it allows Sam to be a victim of office politics. So I think that gives him an element of relatability and believability and uh, also adds a bit of structure to, to the book. So everyone's been to work at some stage. Most people have worked in an office. So it just gives it a structure and makes Sam very believable. So that's how I'm able to weave in big business and, and conspiracies into, into a thriller genre. Yes, we haven't sort of mentioned or, uh, so far that they are all built around this character, Sam Jardine, who is like a 
a second James Bond, a different style of uh, hero from James Bond, but nevertheless, that international and amazingly um, deft sort of hero gets himself out of a lot of very, very dangerous situations. Yes. Um, Sam is, um, is, I've tried to make him a hero for the 21st century, whereas James Bond was, was more the hero for the previous century. So he's full of flaws. Uh, he's, a, he's meant to be an excellent negotiator, so he, his negotiation skills are the same as, say, James Bond's uh, weapon skills or his, uh, his fighting skills. So Sam gets through most of his crises through negotiation. Um, I wanted to make him a lot more believable with a lot more flaws. Uh, so um, I actually tried to, in the early days, uh, model him on myself because uh, obviously that's where you start when you first become an author. Uh, and I thought that would work out as yes. a, a really good um, angle. Um, but when I gave the first draft to my proofreader, I asked her what she thought about Sam, Sam Jardine, and uh, she said, well, he's a bit wet, to be honest. And I thought, oh, um, that wasn't what I was hoping or wanting, so I had to seriously rewrite uh, Sam's character and uh, and make him uh, much more aggressive uh, and, uh, and, I guess, adventurous, more heroic. So, uh, yeah, that, that was my uh, first mistake, I think, in writing. I think one of the refreshing things about him from a female point of view, and, and it very definitely is 21st century with what's been going on in, in uh, America lately, um, is that he is not sexually um, aggressive. In fact, he's very gentlemanly in the way that he conducts himself with the many beautiful women who come across his path, and that's really refreshing. It is a different uh, slant on a male hero, and I think you're... Um, your antennae about what how the world is per, is perceiving those corporate relationships between men and women is is very accurate and on the money because uh, a, a sexually aggressive hero probably just wouldn't work in this climate at the moment. Yes, I agree, um, and I've tried to to make uh, the female characters in the books very strong, and in some cases they are the real heroes as opposed to Sam Jardine. So Sam tends to bumble along a little bit and save the day with his uh, negotiation ability. But it's really the female characters in the book that uh, are the thinkers and uh, the, the heroes in the background. Uh, because I know that the um, majority of, of readers nowadays are actually female and uh, they don't want a Bond girl. You know, I think they don't want someone who just looks pretty and acts dumb. They want someone who's heavily involved in the plot uh, is is there as the hero and the protagonist and the decision maker. And so I've tried to make that reflected in the books. And I think most of the, the females I've put in there have come out very well and very strong. And I think a lot of the female readers have do relate to not just Sam, but to the to the main female characters as well. Yes, that's great. That, that That's certainly true. You've also said that if my readers do not emerge from the books with a tweaked social conscience, then I have failed in my job. And you tackle some big issues like climate warming and those sorts of things. How do you manage to get across a viewpoint without being too preachy and didactic? Um, yeah, so it's a great question, Jenny. I think that authors since the dawn of time, since Aesop really and, and Grimm uh, a bit later on, um, all, we're all trying to tweak everyone's social conscience. Uh, all stories had to have a message, and, and the readers had to come away feeling that uplifted and uh, with an enhanced uh, spirit, if you like. 
And, uh, and so I've tried to do that with some of the, the main issues uh, that we face at the moment. Um, and the way I try and uh, address this is to take the baddies point of view in a lot of cases. So when I talk about uh, terrorists in Egypt, I actually have a lot of the characters and the scenarios based around their point of view and why they are fighting and the reasons behind why they're fighting. Uh, or, on the other hand, I might take um, the CEO of a fracking company and have a lot of the script around him and why he's trying to do what he's doing and make it very believable. And I have Sam going along on that journey, so he might actually be on the side of the evil fracking CEO for the first half of the book, uh, but then his opinion is turned around by the events or the characters in the book. And by the end of the book, he's come a full circle and uh, and is now on the side of good and very, very uh, keen to make things right. Uh, so, so by Sam going on that journey and having the point of view of the baddies and then finally you know, the good aspects of the book come out, make it a lot more believable and, and stop that preachy element that you mentioned in your question. Yeah, yeah. And obviously you're also fascinated by the rise and fall of empires. There's a strong undertow of what's happening in America, what's happening with China, what's happening in Russia, the, the breakup of old empires and the rise of new ones. I wonder if that awareness comes from having grown up as a child in Africa. Um, yes, I think so. Um, my parents emigrated to Zambia in Africa in about 1968. So I'd have been a very young child at the time. Uh, that was just after the, the breakup of the empire. So Zambia had been an independent country for about uh, six or seven years at that stage. So I was at the very tail end of that process. But it was still a very exotic lifestyle and... You know, I was able to interact with the different cultures and particularly the, you know, the Zambian, the African culture. And I had a great love for it. And I felt a great affinity for the people in Zambia and the situation that they were in. And Zambia was a very peaceful country. There was no animosity towards the British when you thought there might have been. But, you know, we were all very friendly and, and, and great, great um, friends with the, the people of Zambia. Uh, so um, that, that has influenced me. I think that uh, the other advantage is that... Um, because Britain was in so many parts of the world that a character like Sam could have a whole series of relatives, uh, great uncles, great great um, grandfathers that were could have been born in different parts of the world, and that allows it to become very personal uh, to Sam Jardine and hopefully personal to the reader when he's interfacing with these different cultures and, and different countries. So I think it's a great um, a great facet of of um, the historical legacy of, of Britain. And again, I try and do it in an empathetic way because uh, you know there are good and bad points about um, you know, Britain's history and the empire. Yes, sure, sure. H have you had any writing mentors and who would you model your work on? Um, yes, so um, I, I wrote a first draft of my book really without consulting anybody and, and, or even trying to learn the, the classical ways of writing thrillers. So I got a first draft. And then uh, I decided, having written the first draft, I would go to the Australian Writers' Centre uh, here in Sydney. And um, the, uh, the teacher there, uh, the mentor, was um, a lady called L.A. Larkin. Uh, and um, she ran the, uh, the course on thriller writing. And um, a fantastic novelist in her own right and has written um, some really good novels. Uh, and coincidentally, a lot of them have similar themes to my own. 
Um, she's a tremendous uh, author and uh, you know, a great teacher and someone that I really look up to and, and try and aspire to. Oh, fantastic. That, that sounds wonderful. What do you find that your readers um, say about your work? I, I see that you have a very active way that you relate to your readers. You, you have a launch team and beta readers, I believe. You really have got alongside your readers and you seem to listen to their feedback. Would that be right? Um, yes, I think that's uh, essential if you're an author. So uh, in the very early days, uh, I gave my early drafts of The Sleepwalker Legacy, my first book, to a book club uh, here in Sydney. And I gave them a list of questions and ask them what they thought and to give me honest opinions as to what they thought of the book. And that really helped uh, you know, craft the book into something a lot more professional than it was in the early days. Um, but um, yes, now uh, I get a lot of feedback from Twitter particularly uh, and the launch team. Um, I get some uh, fantastic reviews um, on Amazon and really take note of, um, of what they're saying. Uh, the things that they say they do like is um, they do like Sam. Uh, I've had a, a lot of people, you know, even one person say, oh, I'm in love with Sam, which was a really nice thing to say because it, it makes me feel as if I've actually succeeded with my main character. Um, they do like the conspiracy angle. Uh, everyone loves a good conspiracy. So, uh, you know, with every one of my books, I will try and weave in, in a very believable and current conspiracy. And they like the, you know, the big, I guess, Hollywood blockbuster feel of the movies. So there's always a lot going on. Uh, there are so many subplots and they have to pay attention, but they also like the fact that it is a very easy read. So you know, there's no uh, complexity about the plot. Um, it's, it, it's designed to be easy to pick up and very hard to put down. So I like to feel that most people will feel they've got to get through it in one or two sittings um, because it, it's, um, it's almost addictive. So that's the kind of feedback I've been getting. Sure, they, and they can be, although they are a series, they can be read as standalones, I think, can't they? Yeah, the, the only common denominator is Sam himself. So um, I sometimes refer back to characters, but they're never part of the, the book. So they can be easily read standalone. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the things that people do like about it. Um, you know, you don't have to have read the first two. You can pick them up at any time and go back to uh, to the earlier books without any uh, you know loss of plot whatsoever. They are they are standalones. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about the the movie feel and the Hollywood aspect. Have you had any interest from that area as so far? Um, a little bit um, from uh, Twitter followers. It's very very superficial at this stage, as you'd expect. Um, but uh, they are very much uh, Hollywood feel movies. Um, so I, with my Twitter account, I, I uh, have a lot of actors, um, uh, actresses, uh, producers on my Twitter account, and uh, I've formed friendships with them. Um, and uh, you know, I've floated the idea of, of having Sam as a, a James Bond-type character. And at this stage, it's still very, very early days. But, um, you know, there's certainly... You know, one uh, film production company, uh, they're actually a wholly owned um, independent female um, production company who've expressed quite a lot of interest in it. Um, but it's early days. I think there's a long way to go. Um, but with the marketing and, uh, you know, the Twitter accounts and the various other ways, it's something I'm certainly trying to, to, to push. Sure, sure. So perhaps moving away from talking about the specific books to a little bit more generally about um, your writing and your career, 
Tell me, is there a mystery in your own life that could make the plot line for a story or a subplot line for a story? Um, probably not so much a mystery, but certainly an adventure. Uh, so uh, when I was living in Zambia, uh, I used to go to boarding school in England and then come back to Zambia for my for the long summer holidays, so three months. Uh, my father owned a farm out in, in Zambia, and... Um, during the Zimbabwe War of Independence, because at one stage it was, uh, it was run by the British and then by uh, Ian Smith, uh, basically a, a white rebel regime who uh, basically refused to accept that uh, Zimbabwe would become independent and, and it became a, a white-run rebel country. Um, so when the, the independence movement started, um, one of the guerrilla uh, uh, organizations set up their training camp uh, right next door to to my father's camp, so there's about sixteen thousand um, guerrilla fighters basically based right next door to us, and there was an incident, a couple of incidents in 1979, when the as uh, the Rhodesian government sent over a couple of uh, or a fleet of Vulcan bombers, and they actually bombed that camp, and uh, my father's uh, farm lost all its glass in the, in its windows. As I say, that happened uh, on a couple of occasions, and there was hundreds, maybe thousands, of deaths in that camp. And you can imagine that uh, that the the guerrillas became quite agitated. And when my brother and I turned up for uh, to our holidays, um, we were kind of seventeen, eighteen year old um, schoolboys. But to the guerrillas, we could easily have been Rhodesian spies. Uh, you know, because we looked like them. We were about the right age, and uh, and suddenly made this appearance. So they were very, very suspicious of my brother and I and believed that we may have even been operatives that guided these Vulcan bombers into to bomb their camp. And one night, uh, they actually raided our, our uh, farm and uh, they, they killed a couple of our workers on the farm, uh, which was really tragic. Uh, but as luck would have it, you know, my brother and I weren't in the, on the farm at the time. Uh, we were the previous night. Uh, we were actually in the city of Lusaka. And uh, and so we missed the whole event. Uh, so um, that was pretty scary, but but we we survived the event. Uh, my father, uh, the very next day, went marching into the uh, the guerrilla camp and remonstrated with the the, the camp uh, general, and uh, assured the general that um, my brother and I were just English schoolboys out on our holidays, and uh, and all was revolt resolved. And uh, in the process, my father managed to get a very large order for his, his chickens because it was a chicken farm and uh, continued trading with him um, thereafter. So we were a little bit of history at the time. Uh, you can look at that incident up on Wikipedia. It's, it's quite a famous incident. How? It sounds very, very dramatic and very scary, actually. Um, your parents are both with you in Australia now, are they? Um no, they um, they uh, lived uh, in Zambia right till uh, till the end. So they oh, died. They? Both yeah. died about um, ten years ago. Um, so uh, I've I've kind of lost that contact with Zambia now. Unfortunately, I'm mm. hoping to take my children there uh, next year, next Christmas. Um, so that will be a really interesting and exciting journey for them, and a real memory jerker for me because I spent a lot of my formative years growing up in Zambia and and love the country dearly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, talk, turning to Christopher as a reader, the series is called The Joys of Binge Reading. And you mentioned that you have been a big, big, big reader all your life, Christopher. So 
Who are some of your favourites and who would you recommend for people to, to try? Um, yes, yeah, so I have read an awful lot of authors. When I grew up, um, Wilbur Smith was my big hero. He was actually born in Zambia as well, and he wrote about um, Africa mainly, but um, a bit of Egypt and various other places. Um, Peter James, uh, who writes um, detective series, uh, you know, Dan Brown, um, John Grisham, Frederick Forsyth, who does um, some wonderful spy novels and thriller novels. You know, I think he's probably the, the classic uh, thriller writer. Uh, Robert Goddard, um, who who uh, is an English author, wrote some uh, really lovely books. And then more locally in Australia, uh, Marcus Zusak, uh, he wrote The Book Thief, um, and he lives just down the road from me. And um, uh, Matthew Riley, he's another thriller writer from, from Australia. Uh, and I mentioned um, my mentor, L.A. Larkin. Um, and um, I've also got a stable mate, someone who shares um, the, the same marketing uh organization as I do, a chap called um, Gabriel Farago. So he writes historical thrillers and, and they're really good, high quality thrillers. Um, so I, I just wish that I'd have that ability because I, I do love my history. Um, but uh, And I would love to have been a, a historical fiction writer, but he's nailed it. Um, and uh, one that I've come across recently is um, a fascinating, humorous author called Lucy Brazier. And um, she wrote uh, what's called a Porter Girl series. So she was the first ever uh, female porter at Oxford and wrote some fascinating and really hilarious stories about her time when she was a porter girl. Um, so those are a few um, that uh, I've enjoyed. And more recently, um, because I've become an author in my own right, I've had some other authors ask me to review their books and potentially provide some, um, uh, some feedback to them. And um, there's an excellent book I'm reading at the moment called The Children's Game, by Max Karpov, and that is such an amazing thriller. It's really based, it's right up to date, and it's about Russia and what it's doing in social media and the propaganda and all the intrigue in the White House. So it's, it's right up to date and very current. So there's some fantastic books and some fantastic authors out there. Uh, and the problem with being an author is you just can't read as many as you would like uh, because you're writing. Um, so it's one of the things that I really miss. But there's some fantastic authors out there, both um, published and, and independent. Actually, um, there are some names there that I don't recognise, so I certainly will be, you know, looking around for them. That, that, that sounds great. You, you mentioned that you, you are indie published and that uh, I wondered if you'd like to just talk a little bit about that process, the benefits and disadvantages of being an indie author. Yeah, uh, it's um, there are definitely positives and negatives about being uh, an indie author. Um, on the good side, um, you can work to your own deadlines. You're writing for yourself, so you're not uh, forced into a very uh, straight-jacketed approach, a formulaic approach by the publishers. Uh, from a financial perspective, you you keep uh, a much higher percentage of um, of sales than you would if you were published. Um, and I think there is now a trend uh, towards indie publication, even by those that have been long established um, with proper public, uh, publication companies. Um, and, um, and they're seeing the benefits of being indie themselves. Uh, but it is a struggle being an indie author. Uh, so the average income of, of an author, you know, whether you're indie or published, is about 12,000 uh, Australian dollars a year, which um, 
is really tough. You've actually got to keep your day job um, as an author, unless you are a Wilbur Smith um, or a Frederick Forsyth. Uh, so that's a problem not just for indie writers, but published writers as well. Um, but it's also very expensive uh, being an indie uh, author. You have to pay for your own proofreading and your own marketing. And uh, it's really hard to get that publicity. So I have to do most of my publicity through through Twitter and, um, and the followers that I have there. Whereas if you are uh, published, then your books just appear automatically in the bookshops. So hard work, but uh, I think being an indie author is probably much more self-satisfying at the end of the day. Yes, and I think once you get a bigger backlist, you, you can expect to do a little better financially. But it is a long game, isn't it? It is very much so. It's an investment and you have to love it. You know, you can't do it in the hope that you'll suddenly become famous and suddenly get rich. It doesn't work that way. You have to have a big track record behind you and with every book comes uh, a whole new following. And, uh, and so it's a long process and you have to be dedicated and spend a lot of time on it. Yeah, yeah. So, Christopher, we're coming to the end of our time. So perhaps we could just look to your future a little bit what is next for christopher the writer new projects things in the pipeline um yes i'm, I'm at that stage where i've literally just finished the last oracle and i've been engaged with all of the the launch activity and the follow-up to that launch activity so while i've been doing that my brain's been ticking on what's next uh, so it's definitely going to be sam jardine wheeled out for a, a fourth adventure uh it's probably 99% certain going to be based in Zambia, um, where I was uh, brought up, uh, because I think I've got a lot to add. And, and people loved the first two chapters of uh, The Last Oracle, which was based in Zambia, and, and wish there was more. So the next book is going to be um, pretty well almost exclusively set in, in Zambia. Um, it's going to catalogue that moment in history when China is uh, on the rise and is just overtaking the US in terms of uh, world dominance. And it's really going to catalogue the, uh, the American retreat um, into this America first uh, ideology where they're, they're withdrawing from a lot of the, the commitments they had around the world and allowing China to, uh, to kind of take over that role. So I think that's a really exciting space to be in. Um, I'm going to have Sam based in a elephant reserve um, and probably sat on top of a rare earth deposit uh, and the, the Chinese and the Americans will be competing to, to get those rare earth metals and, uh, and Sam will have this crisis of conscience as to whether uh, he uh, exploits these rare earth metals or, or maintains the land as, um, as an elephant sanctuary. Sounds absolutely fascinating. There's several threads there which all sound very tantalising. So tell me, where can readers find you online if they want to follow you on Twitter or find your books online? Where is the best place to go? Yeah, best place to go is um, uh, my website, which is um, www.christopherhepworth.com. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's very simple, you know, just, just my, uh, my surname, uh, Christian name and surname. Uh, and uh, yeah, Twitter, just uh, Christopher Hepworth, and you'll find me on Twitter there. Um, so, yeah, but probably best going in through my website. It's got um, all of my blogs, so I'm quite a prolific blog writer as well. Uh, I've got all sorts of conspiracy theories in there and um, uh, in a nature uh, blogs and uh, blogs around uh, the workplace and uh, you know, the changing, um, uh, I guess, power scale between males and females. So there's all sorts of interesting things in, in the website. 
And from there, you can click onto my books and uh, and look at the books and also click into my Twitter website from there. Yes, I love the blog about what you do about trolls. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, I was um, uh, the victim of a uh, a Trump troll piling, and that wasn't pleasant. So, yeah, so that was a response to that experience. Look, Christopher, it's been fascinating talking today. It really has. I think you've done an amazing job. How many years have you actually been writing now? Uh, just over five years. So, um, yeah, I'm printing a book probably once every 18 months. Yes, that's remarkable considering that you've got so much else on as well. And um, I really think your work's growing from strength to strength as you go along too, which is, um, you know, a nice thing to to be able to feel. Thank you, Jenny. So, look, thanks so much for being with us and we'll watch you on Twitter and watch for the next Sam Jardine with interest. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.